Let me read uh, the first few verses of chapter 3. Now Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah, of Judah and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal which his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from it. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder and used to pay the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But it came about when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And he said, Which way shall we go? And he answered, The way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days a seven days journey, and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. When I first read through this section in the first uh, service, and I, we got into this blizzard of king's names, everybody's eyes glazed over and uh, their jaws got slack, and I, you know, I... For so many people, Old Testament history is like Chinese history, or more appropriately, moon history. We don't really know who these people are. So let me try to sketch in the background just uh, just for a moment. If you can envision a map of Israel in your mind and you draw a line just north of the Dead Sea, everything north of that line is Israel. Everything to the south is Judah. Israel and Judah were one nation that was called Israel until the, after the time of Solomon, and then the nation split, and uh, Rehoboam became the king of the south, and Jeroboam, who's mentioned here, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, became the king of the north. He took the ten tribes, he took ten tribes and established a nation in the north. The two tribes that were left, Benjamin and Judah, settled in the south. Jerusalem was the capital in the south. Samaria was the capital in the north. Now, by the time we come to Jehoram, he is the tenth king of the northern kingdom, king of the kingdom of Israel, and his capital was Samaria in the north. So if you picture that in, my, in your mind, Jehoram in the north, and Jehoshaphat was the uh, king of the south. He, was, uh, he reigned uh, in Jerusalem. Now, those are the two, uh, two kings. Now, the Bible tells us that Jehoram did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, not like his father and mother, but nevertheless he did evil. Now, his father was Ahab, and his mother was the infamous wicked Jezebel. He was unlike them, the text says, in that he removed the, uh, the uh, stone that was dedicated to, to Baal, the idol, the Baal idol. Most scholars believe that he didn't actually remove it. He just moved it from the center of town to the temple of Baal so that Baal worship was no longer the state religion, but it was one of many religions that were worshipped in the northern uh, kingdom. The reason Jehoram did not... By the way, he's sometimes called Joram. That's why there's that confusion in the Bibles. 
The reason Jehoram did not remove the Baal statues is because his mother Jezebel was, was still alive. She still wore the royal pants in the family and, and uh, Baal worship continued on for some years. We are told that Jeroboam clung to the sins of, Nebat, uh, of, of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now, the problem with sin is when you cling to it, it clings to you. And there's no end of the evil then that we can do. Our, our evil gets worse actually developing into a baser sort of sin, sin that we never thought that we would, that we would commit. Now, the story of Jehoram's decline is related historically to this fellow Misha that's mentioned in verse 4. It's kind of an interesting uh, historical footnote to this fellow. Back in the mid-1800s, there was a German medical missionary by the name of A.F. Klein that was traveling in what is modern Jordan, came to the ancient city of Dibon, D-I-B-O-N. And because he had demonstrated real love for the Arab people that lived in that area, there was a sheikh who showed him an ancient stone, which uh, he later discovered was actually an inscription that was left by this fellow Misha, in which he says that his god Chemosh had been angry with the land for a number of years, and so he had turned Moab over to Omri, who was Jehoram's uh, grandfather, and Ahab, who was his father. But during the reign of this fellow Jehoram, he rebelled. And that's what the scriptural text tells us. That he failed to pay tribute, the 100,000 lambs, the 100,000 rams that were normally, uh, normally paid. So Jehoram reacted. Now, actually, the rebellion took place during the reign of his, his brother Ahaziah, who preceded him. But Ahaziah fell off his roof and injured himself, and he was sick throughout most of his reign. He wasn't able to do anything about Moab's uh, rebellion. But it fell to Jehoram then to take on that uh, task. I get the impression from reading the passage that his interest was solely monetary. Uh, Moab at that point was not the aggressor. It was that the tribute was cut off. He was driven by his, his, his gods of gold. That was his reason for going to war. So he conscripts an army out of Israel. Now we know from, from extra-biblical sources that Ahab, his father, had an enormous army for that day of about 10,000 uh, men. And we assume that the same army was accessible to Ahab. So that becomes his army, the, the 10,000 men of Israel. They marched to the south to Jehoshaphat. Here's Jehoram in the north, Jehoshaphat in the south. And he appeals to Jehoshaphat to raise an army. Now, Judah was a much smaller country, and we can assume that his army was smaller. Nevertheless, there must have been five or 6,000 or more in his, uh, his contingent. Jehoshaphat, in turn, conscripted a vassal state to the south that was called Edom. The Edomites were not happy campaigners. They didn't want to be part of this uh, war. As a matter of fact, they later allied themselves with, with Moab. Turned, uh, turned their backs on, on Judah. So now you have an army of about 20,000 or so. It's a very large force in terms of those, those days. And they go off marching into, into battle. 
But again, Jehoram does not ask counsel of the Lord. The Lord was nowhere in this campaign. He had never been asked. He had never been called on. And he says to Jehoshaphat, Jehoram does, which way should we go? Now, there are two ways to enter Moab. Again, if you can picture uh, the state of Israel today and the River Jordan and the Dead Sea down here. And, and again, if you draw a line right across the top of the, of the Dead Sea, that's the approximate boundary between some of the tribes of Israel that had settled on the western, uh, eastern side of the Jordan River in modern-day Jordan. It would be Jordan today. Moab is just to the south. And the easiest route would be to cross the Jordan River go through their own territory and attack from the north. The problem was, as we know from reading on, Moab had himself gathered an enormous force, and they were armed to the teeth, and they were waiting right on the northern border. Also, if you ever travel in Israel and you go to Jordan and you come back into Israel, you'll travel down the gorge of the Arnon River. The Arnon has cut a, just an incredible uh, 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 crevice, valley, gorge, about three miles wide and about 23, 2,400 feet deep. It's almost the equivalent of our Grand Canyon. You stand on the banks and you look across, and you can't imagine how anybody could cross that, that uh, breach. So Jehoshaphat was afraid he could not move his men and materials through that, uh, through that valley. So he said, let's go south, which is what they did. They traveled down around the southern part of the Dead Sea, crossed the, uh, the land just to the south of the Dead Sea. And, and when they got back to the, just about the southern end of the, of the Dead Sea itself, and they got into that terrible wilderness over there in, in the land of Edom, just south of Moab, they ran out of water. Didn't have any water for themselves or their, their beasts, that is, the animals that carried their war materials, more machines and and the flocks and herds that, that sustained the, uh, the army. So here were all these mouths to feed and all these people to, to sustain, and they didn't have any water. And they panicked. And on top of it, we know from verse 21 that the, Edomite, the Moabites had moved their army south. Verse 21, all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, and all who were able to put on armor and older were summoned and stood on the border. Everybody that could could strap on, a, uh, strap on armor, was there waiting for them, hiding in the thickets and harassing them. And, and their sharpshooters were, were picking off the Israeli soldiers one, one after another. They, they thought that this campaign was brilliantly conceived, but uh, God wasn't in it at all. He hadn't been asked. They hadn't conferred with him. They didn't really care what his what his opinion was. They put their, their, the best minds, the best military strategists of that day together and, and had gotten themselves into this, uh, this terrible debacle. One of the worst things that Jehoshaphat did was to ally himself with the, with the wicked Jehoram of the north. As a matter of fact, two different times before, Jehoshaphat had allied himself with kings in the north and both times he had been rebuked by the prophets. The first time, Ahab invited Jehoshaphat to join him in, in war, and, and Jehoshaphat uh, went, and uh, he almost lost his life, and he was, he was roundly rebuked by Jehu the seer. The second time, Ahaziah, who was uh, 
Jehoram's brother who succeeded him and Ahab's son talked Jehoshaphat into going together on a, uh, some kind of maritime project to rebuild the ships that Solomon had built. And, and he was warned not to do it. The prophet said, why would you want to align yourself with that wicked king? Why do you want to align yourself with someone that, that loves evil rather than good? And Jehoshaphat didn't pay any attention. And sure enough, the ships were, were wrecked. And now for the third time, you see, the third time, he had allied himself with a, with a wicked man, and he was paying the consequences of it. As mule, mule skinners say, you don't learn anything the second time you get kicked by a mule. But for Jehoshaphat, this was the third time. This was a three-peat. So here these men are. They're in dire straits, and everything they've done is the direct result of their disobedience, and they're unwilling to listen to God, and they're just they're in a terrible, terrible fix. Have you ever been there? Oh my, I have so many times. And we make decisions contrary to the will of God. and We find ourselves in such deep, deep trouble. What are we going to do? We assume that God, God has abandoned us because after all, we, we didn't take his word when we were willing to listen to him. In our pride and our arrogance and our independence, we've taken a course of action that has led us away from from God, and certainly he's not with us in this project. What in the world are we going to do? Well, I want you to note what, what Jehoshaphat did. Verse 11. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants, that is one of his staff officers, answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. That's a, uh, an idiom for uh, someone who's a faithful servant. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. He knew this was a man that was, that was filled with the word of God. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of, the king of Edom I went down to him. Now, now, how Elisha happened to be there, I, I simply do not know. Perhaps he just tagged along, or maybe he was an army chaplain, for all I know. But it's a wonderful illustration of the fact that God is always with us. God had his worker right there in their midst. It's also a, a, a living illustration of that, that ancient adage that, that God always gets his people to the right place at the right time to say the right thing to the right people. See, we don't have to worry about being relevant and useful. God will take care of that. Our business is to fill ourselves with the word of God and make ourselves everlastingly available to him. It's up to him to see that we get to the right place, to talk to the right people, to use the word of God with which we're filled. See, Elisha hadn't said a thing throughout this whole debacle. He just kind of tagged along. And he, he didn't say anything. Nobody asked him anything. So he didn't offer any advice. He was, just, he was just there. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's far better to let people fail than bail them out of their, of their trouble. Uh, ben Patterson, uh, some of you may know Ben Patterson, who's written quite a few books. And ben Patterson says... Uh, Sometimes uh, people learn more 
Uh, let's see, let me get the quote right here. A good scare, he says, often teaches us more than good advice. We're, we're so quick to tell people what they ought to do, but sometimes God wants them to, to experience the consequences of their actions because it's only when we've come to the end of ourselves that we're willing to listen to God. So upon hearing that uh, Elisha was in the camp, the two kings go down to him. That's an interesting statement because uh, there's more to that than the slope of the ground. The author here is not just talking about topography. He's really talking about an attitude. They went down. Because what happens to us in our humiliations is, is that we're humbled. You know, you don't learn humility by reading books about it. And you don't learn humility by reading the Bible. You learn humility through, through humiliation. Uh, one of the early church fathers, uh, we don't know his name, but he just goes by the name, the shepherd of Hermes, said that, that God lets us get into these situations so he can break our heart and break our bones. And that's exactly what happens. We're just brought to the end of ourselves. And when we're broken and destitute and humbled and we've got no way to look up, uh, no way to look except to look up, and God comes through for us. Never despises a broken and a contrite heart. David says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken and a contrite spirit. In other words, what the Lord looks for in our offering is not our intelligence, but our brokenness. See, that's why God lets us get ourselves in these fixes, and he lets the the messes that we've created break us till we come to the point that we're willing to, to listen to him. Uh, John Wooden's comment comes to mind. It's what you learn after you think you know it all that counts. It's when, we've, when our arrogance has pushed us to the end of ourselves that we begin to, to listen to God. And Jehoshaphat was humbled. Apparently Jeroboam was, was not. He was still uh, joined to his idols. Elisha in verse 13 said to the king of Israel what do do I have to do with you go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your of your mother see Elisha knew there was no room in Jehoram's heart for God and there was no room for the for the word of God and so he had nothing to say to the king as Yogi Berra says there there are some people who if they don't know you can't tell them and uh, that was true of, of Jehoram but Jehoshaphat, on the other hand, was a, was a broken man. And uh, that's why Elisha says in verse 14, if it weren't for the presence of Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even look at you, he says. I've got nothing to say to you. But uh, for the sake of Jehoshaphat, he said, bring me a minstrel. And a, a man or woman came and she began to, or he began to play on his harp and to sing to Jehoshaphat the Psalms, I believe, because that's what the minstrels of Israel sang, these wonderful hymns of faith that, that we have in our, in our Psalter. And as the music began to play on Elisha's mind, his heart was softened to hear the word of God. Martin Luther said, Satan hates music and, and worship because it 
It drives the evil spirits from us. I think we've all experienced that truth. We come in here on Sunday morning and we're bedeviled by our preoccupations and our concerns and our anxieties and our worries. And, and as we sit here and, and worship, God speaks to our hearts and settles us down and we're prepared to hear the word of God. And that's what happened to Elisha. As he sat and listened to, to God's word spoken to him through the medium of music, his heart was softened and he received this uh, revelation from, from the Lord. Verse 16. And he said, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. That is, the wadi on which they were camped. Uh, the words for trenches actually is the word for pits. Dig, dig little cisterns, shallow cisterns along the sides of the, uh, of the valley, the wadi. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that, that you shall drink, both you and, and your cattle and your beasts. So the uh, soldiers were directed to build, uh, to dig pits along the sides of the, uh, of the dry wadi, and there's no sign of rain, no clouds in the sky, no wind, but without sound of wind or sight of clouds, water began to flow down into these, into these pits. Verse 20, it happened in the morning about the time of offering the sacrifice that, behold, water came by the way of Edom. Edom would be to the southeast of where they were now located. And the country was filled with water. Here's this, uh, this dreadful desert that they were in. There's no water in sight, and they were without water in their, their flocks, their herds, their cattle, their Soldiers were dying of thirst, and it looked like there was absolutely no way out. And, and Elisha says, go, go dig some cisterns. God's going to provide. And a, a storm that they couldn't see or, or hear somewhere way off in the distance fell on the mountains of Edom, and the water began to flow down the wadis. That often happens in the desert. I, I was stationed for a while down in Barstow in, in Southern California, the Mojave Desert, and often... Water would begin to flow down those wadis without any sign of rain because there would be a cloudburst on the mountains up above. And apparently that's what happened. The water began to fill in the pits. and They had plenty of water to, uh, uh, to drink. All this happened, we're told, about the time for offering the sacrifice. Look at verse 20. It looks almost like a throwaway line, perhaps a, just a, a verse to, to give us the time of the event to let us know that it it took place in, in the morning, but uh, that's not what it's, what it's there for. Events in Israel's history are often correlated with what was happening at, at the temple because everything centered on God and what he was doing. It didn't matter what Israel was doing. What mattered is what God was doing and what was happening at that moment in history was that a lamb was being sacrificed in the morning offering at the temple and it's a reminder to us that God's grace is not based on the fact that he's just a good person or that he decides to overlook our sin or that he looks at us and says, well, boys will be boys. I just have to overlook uh, what the shenanigans that these people are involved in. It's not, it's not what's going on here. God's grace is based upon the sacrifice of his son. It's because Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that God can overlook our sin. That's why it's so significant that this happened about the time of the uh, of the evening sacrifice. 
But that's not the end of the tale. Now, all the Moabites, uh, verse 21, all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, and all who were able to put on armor and older were summoned and stood on the border. And they arose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, and the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. Then they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together. This happened all the time in the ancient world. Armies would get caught up in civil warfare and they'd start killing each other off. There's a, there's a telling example of that in, in the Bible itself in Second Chronicles 20 in a later, later event when these same Moabites fell upon the Edomites that had joined them in battle and began to, began to kill one another. And that's what they thought had, had happened. The soil in that part of the world is red, Edom. As a matter of fact, means red because of the the soil and also because they're descendants of Esau. When the water flowed down the wadi, picked up the silt along the sides of that valley and and the pools looked like blood and the morning sun shining off of the uh, water exacerbated that uh, appearance. And they they thought that uh, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram, the Edomites, had started killing one another off. And so they swooped in for for the kill to loot the uh, fallen armies. And verse 24, when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck, struck the Moabites so that they fled before them. And they went forward in, into the land, smiting uh, the Moabites. And I say that's grace upon grace. This was a battle that they never should have been involved in. It was... Uh, it was ill-conceived from the very beginning. God was not in it. And yet, on these two occasions, God spared them. As you read on into the chapter, which we're not going to do this morning, when they finally were able to push the Moabites back to their capital city, Kir Harasheth, they, uh, they were stalled out there, and something horrific happened that we'll talk about next week that, that so appalled them that they broke off the siege and went back, so it was an incomplete victory. But at least their lives were spared for this, this time. Moab went on to harass them, to haunt them, for a couple of hundred years after this, until the Babylonian period, actually. But nevertheless, for this day, they were, they were spared. And I say, that's grace, as the New Testament puts it. That's grace upon grace. They deserved none of this favor. They had con- you know, God didn't contrive this, these circumstances. They did. They put themselves in this terrible position. And God was still present. didn't make any difference how far they had removed themselves from his presence. He was there in their midst because that's his, his nature. You know, I look around this audience and I, I, just, I see a lot of people that I know who's, who, whose lives are in wreckage because of your own behavior. There have been times when I look back on my own life and I see the, the ruin that I've strewn behind my life and at those times, I've often asked myself, where is God in all this? Has, has he abandoned me? Has he, has he left me alone? No, he hasn't. He's not in the thing that's hurting, but he's in me, the one who is hurting. And, and he's still available. It's God's nature to let us fail. He does so not to shame us, but to assure us that though we're guilty, vile, and helpless, we're forgiven and we remain the objects of his deepest love. His love in the face of our failure awakens us to his amazing grace and makes us love him more than we've ever loved him before. Sin is the, is the usual thing. 
sin and, and failure track us all through life. It's the way we make our way through life. It's, it's our nature to fail. But our failures do not cause God to abandon us because for the sake of the sacrifice on the cross, it's his nature to save. Uh, Henry Nouwen, whom I often quote, tells a story about a man who was trying to save a scorpion from, from drowning. And every time he picked up the scorpion, the, uh, the uh, insect would, would bite him, would sting him. And someone said to him, why are you doing that? Don't you know it's the nature of a scorpion to sting? And he said, yes, but it's my nature to save. And that's the way God is. It's our nature to sin. It's our nature to fail. Folly will will pursue us all through our lives. We'll never get it right until we step into the Lord's presence. But but it's our Lord's nature to, to save. And without that understanding, we're doomed. If we really think that God is going to track us down and he's going to deal with us according to our sins, then we'll always be terrorized by God. We'll fear him in the worst possible way. We have to see God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the story of all of us, you see. Our failure does not cause God to fail us. Some of you may have heard of Jean-Paul Sartre. A few years ago, he was a very popular writer, among, particularly among students. And I just this last week came across a statement, his statement about uh, what it was that turned him away from God. He was, as you know, an atheist, an existentialist. He ended his life in, in utter despair. For him, suicide really was the only logical solution to, uh, to life. And uh, in a work that he entitled, The Words, he tells us about the day he turned away from God. Only once did I have the feeling that God existed, he wrote. I had been playing with matches and burned a small rug. I was in the process of covering up my crime when suddenly God saw me. I felt his gaze inside my head and on my hands. I whirled about in the bathroom, horribly visible, a live target. Indignation saved me. I flew into a rage. I blasphemed and he damned God. And then he says he never looked at me again. And I say, no, no, God is not in uh, Sartre's angry God with the baleful eye that's uh, looking over us when we fail and is damning us. He's in Christ, hanging on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Once you look at that cross and you understand the enormity of God's grace, then you can, you can enter into it. Now, that's my word for you this morning. I, that, that's God's word for you this morning. Some of you I know are, are looking back on events of this past week or, or years ago, and you're regretting some action that precipitated you into ruin, and you're living with the consequences of that ruin today, and you're wondering, what in the world am I going to do? Greek word for repentance. Those are the only two options, either repentance in the face of our sin and laying hold of God's forgiving grace in Jesus Christ or that terrible paranoia, fear of God, terror that just tears us apart. 
And I say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Would you take your bulletins and turn to that prayer that's on the front, prayer by Soren Kierkegaard? Father in heaven, he writes, do not hold our sins up against us, but hold us up against our sins. So that the thought of thee, when it wakens, should not remind us of what we have committed, but of what thou didst forgive. Not of how we went astray, but of how thou dost save us. Let's pray. And I would like to ask you to take this opportunity to look way down in your own heart. To be willing to face into the sin that has put you in the situation that you're in today and to repent of that sin. To call it what God calls it. It's rebellion against his will. It's a simple fact that when we do not do God's will, we will destroy ourselves. Will you look at that sin and will you see it as God sees it? God exposes us not so he can see what we're like. He knows what we're like. We don't have to explain ourselves to him. He knows exactly what we are and what we're capable of. He knows all the sources and and all the expressions of of our depravity. He understands us inside and out. But he lets us get ourselves into these messes and expose ourselves So we will turn from our sin and cling to him and accept his forgiveness and his grace. Would you do that? Just thank him that he's there, that he's present. And ask him to begin to to guard your heart of hearts and protect you and be everything that you need in the face of the, the consequences that have accrued from your sin. He does not fail us when we fail. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that remarkable, wonderful truth. That you love us despite what we are and what we have done. We see it so vividly expressed in this story. It's one thing for us to carry it around in our heads, but we ask by means of your Holy Spirit that it would penetrate our hearts and then we would we would understand fully what it means to be saved by grace. We thank you for that great outpouring of love that we experience day after day because of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.